It's sometimes said that all of the Buddha's teachings can be summed up in two words. And good news for those of you with poor memories. So listen carefully. It's said that all the teachings can be summed up with just the words don't cling or let go. In the various quotes of the Buddha that illustrate the kind of central place of dwelling with the mind of non-clinging, of this sense of letting go, letting go, as being at the very heart of what it means to practice Dharma. The Buddha said, nothing in this world should be clung to as I or me or mine. There's nothing in this world worth clinging to. He also said, where there is suffering, there is clinging. Where there is clinging, there is suffering. Suffering, uh, the end of suffering is the end of clinging. So this, this very, very clear and precise relationship he draws between the way we suffer over our lives and that related to our incapacity to let go, to unhook, <coughs> to stop clinging. So I just want to talk a little bit about some of the ways in which we hold on and about why we find it so difficult to let go and how that letting go can inform and transform our lives. Somebody in one of the small groups today spoke a little bit about letting go and they spoke rather beautifully of seeing the kind of uh, the possibility, the beauty, the spaciousness, the being very inspired by that sense of, of letting go, of a more spacious way of being. But that it also seemed rather scary, the idea of letting go. There's a kind of uh, loss of reference point that goes with that. A, a, a fear of what will happen to me if I let go. So I might find myself kind of stretched out or dissipated, nowhere to uh, locate. And it is scary to let go. It demands of us a willingness to drop <coughs> the familiar for the unknown. There's a, a story that illustrates this quite nicely. Uh, in the story, a man is being chased by a tiger, running from the tiger. And in running from the tiger, he's not looking where he's going, running and running and running. He runs over the edge of a cliff. And falling down the cliff, he grabs wildly at the cliff and grabs onto some thin vine growing out of the cliff. And dangling over miles, great distance to the ground, hundreds of meters to sharp rocks below. 
hanging by one hand from the vine. Good moment to uh, practice awareness. In his fear, in his, uh, the urgency of the predicament, the man's mind uh, goes towards God seeking help. He's never thought about God before. He's never been concerned with God. But now, suddenly, God seems a very good idea. So he calls out in his desperation, hanging on with his, to this flimsy vine. Oh God, I've, I've never thought about you, I've never believed in you, but uh, please, help me. If you do exist, please, uh, help me now. So, a voice from the heavens booms out. Here I am. Oh, God, relief. The man says, the man says, oh God. He says, just please help me now. I'll do everything. I'll, I'll, be your, I'll do everything you tell me from now on. I'll be your loyal servant. I'll follow your way. Just please help me get out of this. Okay. <laughs> oh, so the man's greatly relieved. He said, just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll always follow you and uh, just, just tell me how to get out of this one. Hanging there. And God's voice booms down. Just let go. <laughs> and the man says, You must be joking. It's scary to let go. So, even then with God's own promise that he'll help, just let go. The wish to be saved, the calling out to God, the sense of, I'll do anything. But still holding on. Not having the faith to really let go. So, what is it that we really hold on to? What is it that we find so difficult to relinquish, to let go, to unhook from? And how can we make that change? One of the great areas of our clinging and holding on is in the whole realm of our what I want. The kind of great pull of our desires that we cling on to. And desire is a very interesting one to look at in terms of letting go because we have this kind of uh, the lure. We see what we get. So we're kind of obsessed by the promise of what we're going to get. Then the idea of letting go sounds rather dull. Or, uh, you know, if I, if I follow my desire, at least at the end of it, I'm going to get what, you know, I'm going to get that fruit of the desire. If I let go of the desire, kind of left with nothing, it seems. And so, without... It's too much to just ask us, oh, let go of desire. Why would I want to do that? So, it's somehow something needs to be seen and cultivated through practice that allows us a trust and a faith 
to let go, that sees not only the promise that, that uh, is there with what we're, we're desiring or moving towards, but that also starts to see the danger in that, sees the way in which it's painful, the way in which we're in distress or contraction because of that desire. And so an example of that would be... Um, I'm sure there's lots of examples. In it, here over the days, maybe you've had one or two desires now and then. Probably for most, at least once, the desire for the sitting to end. And of course, our lives are, are filled up with simple desires, moment by moment, maybe coarse desires of uh, wealth and fame and prestige and uh, all that kind of thing and maybe more subtle desires the desire to be a kinder person a good person an enlightened person just a slightly less deluded person wouldn't be bad and so there can be a real sincerity of desire certainly I wouldn't want to give the impression of being down on wanting things, whatever they are in any way. But just want to try and explore where we get stuck, where desire becomes unhelpful and in fact painful and where we need to let go. So just in the sitting here, sitting down, breathing in and out, and there's boredom or there's pain in the leg or something and we say, oh, if only this sitting would end. And it doesn't. It's still going on. And the charge of that desire maybe starts to get stronger. Until we've completely hung our happiness and well-being on achieving that desire. If only the bloody sitting would end. And probably, hopefully, philosophically, we wouldn't say that when this sitting ends, all my problems in all my life will be over and gone. We wouldn't say that philosophically, but experientially, that's the way we react to it. We're kind of saying to ourselves, come on, come on. We just, with all our being, we're saying, for, for goodness sake, we just want the sitting to end, for us to move. And we... we we relate to that as if that's really going to make a difference to our lives. We haven't understood the nature of desire. Because that's what desire does. It gives us this mirage, this uh, promise. It's telling us, if I get this, I'll be okay. I just need that. If only I had that. We so often live in a world of if only. As if that thing could really make a difference. And there's two main ways, I'd say, where we're really deluded by desire. One is just that, is really thinking that this thing could make a difference. Because, of course, as soon as we get this thing, how long does the, the relief last for? We're straight off onto something else. And that process is endless endless, one desire after another after another, after another, after another 
I've never met anybody who's used them all up. Oh yes, I wanted this and I want this and I wanted that. And then I got them all. And now I'm absolutely done with desire. But we behave as if that could be the case. So I really, I really want such and such a thing. And then we get it. And two minutes later we want something else. We just want the sitting to end. I just want the sitting to end. How long does the relief of that last? And we're straight off into... I just want the walking to end, maybe. (laughs) (coughs) Or the morning is taken up by this great movement of mind that's just pointed single-pointedly. Oh, great concentration. Unfortunately, it's not on the breathing, it's on the lunch. (laughs) So we, we somehow put all our happiness our capacity for well-being at 12.30 and in between there's just this kind of terrible ordeal to get through and then 12.30 is there and oh, lunch, lunch and we walk and we smell it as we walk along the corridor and we finally get the, the plate and we sit down <coughs> got the lunch but so quickly we noted one mouthful and we're already thinking I wonder if it's going to be enough for seconds how long did the relief from the desire last? No time. <coughs> Straight into worrying about the seconds. So we're hurrying through the lunch, even though we've been focused on it all morning, hardly noticing what it is we're eating, because the mind's already moved off again into the future on desire. The seconds. Get the seconds and come back. No sooner have we got the seconds, we're thinking, oh, it'd be great to lie down and sleep after this. And mind's moved on again. Endless train of desire. It's kind of just just thinking about it, it's exhausting. Moving through life, being shunted unconsciously for the most part, from one desire to another to another, with no possibility for respite, no possibility for just kind of one day happily arriving at the end of all that. Just desire, another one, another one, another one, and at some unspecified point in the future, death. So the other, the other main problem with desire that we tend not to notice unless we're looking very carefully is that we seem, we get this kind of relief so we go we eventually get to the lunch queue and oh lunch we hear the bell oh lunch and there's that kind of relief that's what makes desire so uh, that's what makes us want to fulfill our desires it's that feeling of ah we get when we eventually manage to get the thing we want the mistake we make is that we because we're not attending carefully we seem to think that the relief lies in the object of desire. We seem to invest the actual lunch, the rice and tofu and vegetables, with the power to give us peace. Very strange. Or in the example I gave earlier of sitting here, we give the end of the sitting the the power that that's 
oh, that's what's going to do it for me. If I only need a sitting room, I can move. If only I can get out of here. That's what I need. And then, as we're sitting there, bell rings. The end of the sitting, oh, relief. Have you noticed you actually don't need to move sometimes for the relief to be there? It's just the knowing that we don't have to sit here anymore. <laughs> Suddenly it's okay to be here. I was restless and I'm fidgety and my legs are in pain and if only the bell would ring. And then the bell rings and I go, oh, thank goodness. And suddenly it's perfectly comfortable and easy to be here. There's a clue in there somewhere. (laughs) What gives us the relief or the peace is the end of the wanting. The end of the desire. Desire is really uncomfortable. If we examine it closely, we see how it kind of prickles. It niggles us. It pushes us. It agitates us. It drives us along. And so we feel, if we're not careful, compelled to follow that desire and try desperately to get what we want. Why? To feel some relief from that niggling, poking, pushing force of desire. The end of, de- of wanting, the stopping of that desire, is oh, relief, peace. <coughs> is there another way? Could there be another way to access that peace and that spaciousness? We can see, if we look carefully, that the attainment of the object is not actually necessary for that peace when when we're desperate for the sitting to end and to get up we don't need to actually get up to feel the relief remember sometimes in practice when I would be feeling some uh, agitation or uh, pain and I could feel I'm kind of trying to relax and be with it but I can feel there's some contraction there I would just ring myself an imaginary bell. And then you're just in my mind, ding, and ah. There's something, kind of, a sense of ah, giving me permission to relax. That we've just checked out of the wanting mind. Just that we can to recognise. So it's really useful for us to pay attention to wanting itself as an object of meditation, as something really worthy of our attention to see how it moves, the way it prickles us, the way it compels us, the way it kind of gets us in this grip. And to see, is it possible for us to know the end of wanting without having to chase off after the object. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a a few minutes. Another area that we find it very hard to let go is 
the area of our views and opinions and ideas about things. Our our views seem to offer us some degree of security or certainty. They show us uh, where we belong, who's on our side, and give us a a sense of the world and our place in it, a sense of uh, our views about morality, maybe, or about what's right and wrong, about uh, political views or religious views or whatever it might be. And just as there's nothing wrong with the fact that wanting happens, there's nothing wrong with the fact that we hold views. It offers us one way to make sense of the world. But what easily happens is we contract around, we get tight around those views. And that immediately, automatically puts us into conflict with others who hold a different view. And the very fact that we can hold different views ought to, again, give us a clue about views and our tight relationship with them. The fact that I can hold one view and be convinced that I'm right, and that somebody else can have the opposite view and be equally convinced that they're right, what does that tell us about the view? Where's the right? If something's right, right, objectively right, there can only be one right. Can't be two opposite rights. It's the clinging that produces the sense of right. And I'm sure that my right is the right right. But unfortunately, he's sure that his right is the right right. And so, conflict. And it's scary for us to let go of our views because they give us a sense of where we belong as I say of who we are but when we start to feel into that where we see how I've got a rigid idea of something that it's, it's actually causing me distress because I, I'm kind of holding that together I'm putting myself as an opposition I have to defend that view I feel resentful that somebody has the opposite view to me What a painful way to go through our life. And uh, these views operate really throughout all the different realms of our experience from gross views about things, which might be a kind of political views, say, but down to very, very subtle views about how things are, about how I am, or how others are. And the way we can get very, very defensive internally around our ways of seeing things. We kind of order the universe with our views. It's like this, it's like that. And there's a way in which that's really limiting for us. Because it cuts us off from direct experience. Like our, our vision of the world, for example, is very under, underpinned by a kind of scientific view. Uh, just last week I was on a beach uh, watching a very uh, impressive thunderstorm and lightning. 
I mean, one of the most extraordinary storms I've seen. It lasted for several hours, and it was quite—it was a few kilometers away from me, so I was able to sit out and not get wet, and watch these incredible flashes of pink and orange lightning, and great thick forks coming down into the sea, and constant kind of technicolor flashes in the sky. Now, my scientific view. I've learned, I have a view about electrical storms that tells me it's something to do with, um, um, you can see my view isn't very well developed, but something to do with electrical activity and pressure change in the atmosphere. But what a horribly unsatisfying way to be in touch with a lightning storm. So my daughter asked me, What's lightning, Dad? You know, how, how's that's amazing. What is lightning? I just caught myself about to laugh. Well, you see, it's about electrical activity and uh, pressure changes. And I thought, no, no. I just, I said, well, let, let's watch it together. And they're like, wow. No, a, a lightning storm like that. It's not about electrical activity and pressure. It's about, wow. <laughs> The view kind of gives me this really shoddy second-hand account of how things are. The direct experience gives me a beautiful contact with the kind of majesty and mystery of life, revealed in this case through a storm. But it can equally be through seeing a flower. Or breathing in and out. Or the miracle of light. <laughs> you know, our view would tell us that this, what just happened now was a grace of the, by the grace of the Southwest Electricity Board. But that's just a shoddy second-hand account. If we just, underneath that, a kind of more innocent, more wide awake, a more uh, sensitive view, it's, Wow. And when we start to see, oh, the limiting, the way our views are limiting us, the way they're cutting us off, the way they're separating us from being really intimate with life, that kind of starts to um, pave the way for real letting go. We start to see the, what's called the promise and the danger, the Buddha called. So whether it's with the desire or with the view, we see the promise of what that seems to offer. The, view, the promise of a view is it seems to offer some, us some degree of certainty or knowledge about. The promise of desire is it seems to offer us something we'll get, something that'll make us happy, something that'll, that'll uh, be fulfilling, something that'll cure that, that wanting. But we also see the danger. The danger in views of separating us from, from being intimate with life. The danger with desire of getting on this endless treadmill of agitation towards getting and having and becoming. And that starts to pave the way for a more genuine letting go. And another area where we get very um, tight, where we hold on a lot, 
is in the whole sense of self of perceiving the world in a, in a way where everything is kind of discrete and separate and solid most of all of course uh, this thing here me and that also offers us uh, something as a promise it kind of gives me a sense of identity or security and safety in some ways it's kind of I can make sense of the world I'm here you're over there the world's kind of all around and we make our way based on that from here to there from this to that and all the kind of complex negotiations that go on between me and you and me and the world and how to get where I'm going and do what I need to and again just like with desire just like with the views I'm not suggesting for a moment that there's anything wrong with that that we shouldn't speak or act in that way necessarily but that there's a great danger when we cling on to that when we hold on to that as being the absolute truth of the way things are when we live our lives only from that place of kind of reductive tight sense of how things are, of how I am so our tendency is to see things very much in terms of to solidity seeing this as something solid and fixed called Martin seeing something like Gaia House as solid and fixed, Gaia House that place where retreats happen but actually it's not like that every time I come here there's different people here so what happened to that completely fixed thing called Gaia House one time there's one lot of managers the next time there's different ones one time there's one lot of yogis the next time there's different ones hold on I thought Gaia House was Gaia House if Gaia House was Gaia House it would always be the same it would be full of the same kind of people Poor you, if it's you, like to be trapped in here forever, as the yogis of Gaia House. <laughs> so, well, well, it's obviously then Gaia House can't be completely the same because the people change. We say, well, of course the people change, but it's Gaia House. But is there any single part of it we can isolate and say, oh, that's that's the essence of Gaia Houseness? Because it. It's always different. And it's just the same in here. Is there any part of me I can find that is really inherently me, the real me, the heart of me, the me that's absolute meanness? I've, I've, I've looked and looked and looked. I know lots of people that have looked and looked and looked. Nobody's found it. Please, if you've found it, show me. Show me. Don't have to show me, try and show yourself. But the idea of letting go of that solidity is scary. It's such a reference point for us. 
me and my life, me and the world, me and those I love, me and where I'm going. It's such a reference point. And so it has that sense of promise of giving us a place in the world and maybe a direction through the world. But when we start to look very carefully at the constructs of the way, the way we build identity, the way we build identity both in ourselves and in all the things we relate to, we start to see also the danger, the way that's limiting, the way that's uncomfortable, the way it's really hard work to always be needing to maintain this sense of self. Maintain it in terms of what I, what I think and feel about myself, what, what others think about me. It needs an awful lot of bolstering up, all of that. And it's kind of constantly going up and down, up and down. Somebody says some, uh, some rude or unkind or unappreciative thing to us and a sense of self kind of crumbles and is weak and is pathetic and we feel, oh God, I'm, I'm useless kind of character. And we kind of work hard and we really try and ingratiate ourselves to people and we're very, very nice and we behave in a really dharmic way and then somebody says, oh, you're such a kind person, I really appreciate you. And then, whoop! <laughs> sense of self goes up. We say, oh, oh yes, and I like this, I like this. But it means so much more time. We've got to keep on acting in that dharmic way and being all nice and and even, even with all of that, no guarantee that people will carry on appreciating us. What a strain to, to live our life. We can kind of sense the sort of desperation that that takes to keep building ourselves up, to keep holding it together, to keep maintaining this sense of self. And when we start to see that agitation, we start to begin to trust the possibility of letting go into a more expansive way of being. So with all these three areas, the whole area of wanting, the area of all my views and constructs and ideas about things, and the way we separate the world out into bits, into selves, into individual parts, me and you and this and that. They all offer us some degree of security, but it's a very, very limited security and it's one which is really hard work to maintain over and over again. It takes an awful lot of energy. And as we sit in an environment like this, as we investigate, as we pay attention, we start to see how much compulsive energy, moment by moment, we're putting into maintaining our life through desire, through views and opinions, and through belief in some kind of solidity that, when we start to really examine it, looks pretty shaky. And we start to be more deeply interested in what would it mean to let go of being enslaved to wanting. 
What would it mean to introduce a little bit of doubt to those solid views I have? And to meet life more directly than through the filters of my ideas about it? What would it mean to trust a more expansive and inclusive way of being than the narrow confines of (coughs) self? And just within our being here, within the simple activities of sitting and walking, of paying attention, we start to have a sense of how that letting go works. And as a very simple example, it might just be sitting here with a pain in our knee, and it's uncomfortable. And it starts off just like that an uncomfortable sensation in the knee. But then we kind of get into the kind of resistance thing and the wishing it would go away and and wondering how much longer the sitting is. And as I explained earlier, we get into this whole desperation thing of wishing it would end, wishing we could move, wishing the bell would ring. And it becomes excruciating to just sit here. And then something happens... There's a moment of spaciousness or clarity or a larger perspective and we see that a lot of all this dukkha, Buddha's word, Pali word, means suffering, distress, pain, anxiety, tension, that which is hard to bear, all of that is contained in this word dukkha. We start to see that a lot of that is actually I'm contributing to. We start to see that I started off with some uncomfortable feeling in the knee and now I've got clenched jaw, tight shoulders, shallow breathing, furrowed brow, terrible, chaotic, runaway thoughts. And we say, hold on. I don't need to go there. And we just drop it. We just drop all of that extra stuff. And then we find we're just back to sitting quietly, <coughs> peacefully, with some unpleasant sensation in the knee. And it's fine. And that letting go, we cannot see too well or too often. It's, it's, it's something simple. All we need... So that is just a little bit of pain in the knee to have this great insight. And what's extraordinary to see is the experience doesn't need to change. Sitting with some discomfort in the knee in the beginning and sitting with some discomfort in the knee at the end of the process. The experience hasn't changed. What's changed is the way of relating to it. From being tight and contracted around, through having all kinds of complex thoughts about, and through having a strong desire to wish to change it, to the capacity to just recognise, wow, this is a great big burden that I'm carrying, and I don't need to carry it. And, ah, dropping it. Letting go. And we see that the fruit of that letting go is peace, relief, 
expensiveness. Wonder even. And understanding. Understanding how so much of the complexity and pain and distress of my life is a direct result of my own messing things up. (laughs) My own making complicated. My own demands. My own resistance. My own (coughs) added extras. So in those moments of practice where we just let go in some simple way maybe really let that register let it run deep let it be really acknowledged that there's something profound in the capacity and in the willingness to drop it to unhook to let go and to really feel the fruits of that relief and spaciousness that follows. When we just let go of resisting a knee pain. And to let that the sweetness, the relief of that run as deeply as it can. So that we're very much building up a trust in the process a willingness, a conviction that letting go is something profound and transformative. So that any idea we may have of (coughs) renunciation, relinquishment, letting go, is one which is far from being a kind of conventional or a rather coarse view as giving up something, as doing without, as missing out on something. Because that's often the view of renunciation somehow. As it's this rather austere thing that monks do, they renounce, get rid of, don't have, do without. And it's this kind of dried up, miserable way of being. But we start to sense the relinquishment, renunciation, letting go, as something beautifully unburdening. Simplifying, uncluttering, something that makes for space and contentment. Ajahn Chah, great uh, teacher from the Thai forest tradition who died about ten years ago or so, he said, Let go a little. And you'll have a little peace. Let go a lot. And you'll have a lot of peace. Let go completely. And you'll have complete peace. And freedom here and now. So my hope very much is that. Our practicing together over these days. Is in the service. Of understanding the great benefit for ourselves, for all those we have contact with, and for all of life in letting go, in ending our clinging 
onto life and therefore ending suffering in life. May all beings know the spaciousness of letting go. May all beings abide with a mind of non-clinging. May all beings know freedom from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.